Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 19. We're continuing our study in this series, and tonight we come to a portion of chapter 19, beginning at verse 15. But before I read our text, and I'm going to actually read it in three different parts as I preach, I want to say some words of introduction, especially uh, for those of you who may not have been with us the past few weeks. We come to the point in the book where David is returning from his exile east of the Jordan River and prepares to cross over and to return as the king of Israel. And we should remember the structure of this book, which begins with the events that lead to David becoming king. And then we found that there's this section that we might call a golden age of David's reign with many blessings and many good things that happened during that part of his reign. And then the story takes turns a corner when David falls into serious sin with the events of Bathsheba and Uriah. And the consequences of those sins are monumental, as we find, as the book of 2 Samuel unfolds. And God tells David that he is fully forgiven, but there are consequences. And one of them is described that the sword would never depart from his house. And we see that in the chapters that follow. And so in the chapters that we've been looking at, we have seen this terrible rebellion of David's own son, his son Absalom. And chapter 18 describes the the death of Absalom at the end of the battle in which David's army is victorious. But the ending is not really happy because David is covered in grief for his son Absalom, who has been killed. In fact, uh, in the first part of chapter 19, which we're not going to read, we learn that David has to be rebuked by his general Joab because he doesn't even greet his victorious returning troops after the day of battle. David is consumed too much with grief for his son. It's a really sorry scene in one sense, and one that reflects what has clearly become the brokenness of David's kingdom. And it makes us long for David's greater son, who would be the king who would establish the kingdom that doesn't have any brokenness. David's kingdom is no longer shining with much goodness or glory at this point. But here in the middle of chapter 19, the narrator gives us some snapshots of certain individuals and their reaction to the return of David as king. And we can imagine the situation not long before this point in the narrative. It would have seemed that David was done that his kingdom was in shambles, that his son would certainly sweep him off the face of the earth, and that any resistance by David and his supporters would be crushed. And that Absalom, the new face in Jerusalem, would be the new king, but things did not turn out that way. In fact, it was a stunning turnaround, and now it is Absalom who is gone, caught by his own handsome hair, and executed ignominiously. And now, David is returning. 
The king is returning. And the northern and southern tribes of Israel and Judah are falling over each other to be the first to welcome David back. And we'll see there, there's still more to come. We're not going to study at all about civil war that still comes out of this, but that's finally put down. But here at this point, as David and his army approach the River Jordan, various people and representatives stream out and come down to meet him and to escort him as the returning king. And this is where the narrative picks up in verse, in verse 15. And I want us to consider the, the response of three individuals particularly that we read and think about our own hearts and our own response to the return of Jesus the King and how we live for him as we await his coming. And so the first character we meet is the very colorful but very negative character, Shimei, the son of Gera. And the subtext of this first point is giving God lip service only. And so at this point, I want to read the first section, verses 15 to 23, which concern Shimei. And think about the lip service that he gives. So hear God's word beginning in 2 Samuel 19, verse 15. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, to understand the response of Shimei, the son of Gera, we have to remember his actions when, not long before this, in chapter 16, when David was fleeing for his life. Because now we see Shimei with a completely different attitude. It's, it's a complete turnaround. We have to remember that Shimei was a relative of King Saul, and he did not like David at all during the first part of David's reign. And when Absalom rebelled, Shimei saw it as a perfect opportunity to give David a piece of his mind with deeply treasonous words as David and his entourage fled from Jerusalem and passed over the Mount of Olives. And at that time, Shimei stood by the roadside, if you look back to chapter 16, and shouted curses 
at the Lord's anointed. And he falsely accused David of being a man of blood regarding Jonathan, David's dear friend, and and King Saul. Uh, Actually, in other words, accusing David of having been part of a conspiracy to murder them when actually nothing was further than from the truth. And Shimei had actually picked up rocks and had hurled them at David and his men. And it was only because of David's humility at that point and his restraint uh, that David's men did not execute Shimei on the spot that day. But David would not have any hand raised against Shimei. He saw it as part of God's wisdom and judgment against him at the time, and so he received it with humility. But you can imagine this man's horror then when word of Absalom's defeat reached his town. You can just imagine it. Absalom is dead. King David is returning. This was not good news for him. Not a happy thought at all when you've been the one to curse and accuse and throw stones at the returning king. So what we see here in these verses that I've just read are powerful attempts at damage control, aren't they? You know, he's hoping that he's not going to be put to death. And he mentions that he's the first of all of Joseph's house. That represents the northern tribes. He's the first of all Israel to welcome David back. And you can see him with a warm smile and crossing over and falling on his face in submission and loyalty. And by the way, he's got a thousand Benjamite soldiers with him to underscore his newfound allegiance to King David. And some of the words that he speaks to David are eerily reminiscent of David's confrontation when Nathan confronted him about his sin because Shimei says the same words. At some points he says, I have sinned. David had said to Nathan, I have sinned. And David uh, now assures him at the end, you shall not die. That's the same phrase that Nathan told David, you shall not die. Interesting. But there's one big difference about these two confessions, so to speak. David had been honest and sincere before God in his repentance. David's repentance was a God-centered repentance. And if you read Psalm 51, you see the reality of David's heart of genuine repentance. By stark contrast, it's evident that Shimei's repentance is clearly a sham and a show. It's a put-on repentance to save his own skin, and he knows it. And his friends know it, and the Benjamites probably know it, and David knows it, and David's men know it. They want to execute him now. But David is gracious, and probably for the good of the nation and to promote political unity, he says in verse 22, shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? And so Shimei's fake repentance works, at least to an extent. His life is spared, at least for the time being. He will eventually be executed by David's son, King Solomon. But what does his example say to us? Well, the application is this. Shimei is an example of putting on faith in Jesus for show and for personal advantage. And it's a dangerous thing to do, but it happens regularly in the visible church. You can put on a superficial profession of faith in Christ to please others, to maybe please your parents or to please your girlfriend or to please your spouse. And 
You can do it to present yourself to the community at large in a positive light. You can even do it to enhance your business prospects because you're a member of that church down the street when all the time your heart is really cold to the Lord Jesus and you know that you haven't truly put faith in him and have turned from your idolatries of this life to trust him and to give him the lordship of your life. And that kind of fake profession is a very dangerous game to play with the God of the universe who knows our hearts and will one day come in great power and glory. And Jesus has strong words of warning for this type of false profession in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, not everyone who makes a profession of faith in me as Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. It doesn't mean that we merit salvation. It means that if we profess and say, Lord, confess him as our Lord, there has to be some fruit in our lives, not perfect fruit by any means, but that we genuinely give him our lives and submit our lives to him. And so Shimei is a bad example for us, a negative example, an example of repentance that is only for self-interest. It's a lip service, not a heart loyalty allegiance. And may our faith and love for Jesus, we pray, be the real thing so that when the King of Kings returns, we will welcome that day with heartfelt joy because we know that we are in Christ. But secondly, we want to look at the example of Mephibosheth, which is a difficult name to say, but I'm going to try to say it every time his name comes up. Here we want to read verses 24 to 30. And the subtitle of Mephibosheth is Living in View of God's Amazing Grace. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided that you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Before we think about what we've just read here, we should recall some facts. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. And in chapter 9, shortly after David has become king, he seeks out a descendant of King Saul to show kindness to Saul and Jonathan. And he learns about Mephibosheth, this crippled man, 
Jonathan's son, and he brings Mephibosheth before him. And by his grace, David restores to Mephibosheth all of the lands of King Saul. So he makes him a wealthy man. And Ziba is involved with this, the chief servant who is taking care of Saul's lands. And we see that Ziba is also in the account in verse in chapter 19. And when that takes place, Mephibosheth pays homage to David and says these words in chapter 9, verse 8, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? What does he mean by that? He means that in that culture and time, it was the tradition that any descendants of a king who could possibly be a threat to the present ruler would be put to death. It would have been natural for David to execute all the descendants of, of Jonathan and, and Saul. And that's why he mentions he was a dead dog, like he was expecting that he was going to be executed. But instead of doing that, David elevates him. He lets him sit at the king's table and eat from the king's table with him. And it's a beautiful picture of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. In a sense, Mephibosheth deserved only to die. And David not only gave him life, but brought him into his presence in his kingdom. Well, that's part of the backstory. But then there's a twist in chapter 16 when we saw that when David was fleeing, this head servant, Ziba, meets David on the Mount of Olives. And Ziba is bringing donkeys and provisions. He brings 200 loaves of bread and 100 bunches of raisins and 100 summer fruit and a skin of wine. And David's very appreciative of this support because they're all fleeing and they had to leave apparently on foot. So they have donkeys they can ride. The king's household can use these. And he asks Ziba, but where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba, at this point, lies and slanders his master, Mephibosheth. We only find that out here in chapter 19 when we just read And he says something like, he's remaining in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. He puts these treasonous words in Mephibosheth's mouth, as if Mephibosheth is scheming with Absalom some way, and he's hoping that he will be the king. And now, in chapter 16, when that takes place, we don't know what to believe about this report. Was that true? But as it turns out, our verses show us that Ziba had very viciously slandered Mephibosheth at that point, all to advance his own cause. Because David, in chapter 16, gave Ziba all of Saul's property. Well, now in light of that, our verses are before us, which describe this meeting with David when David has finally returned to Jerusalem. And what do we learn here? We see that David understands that Ziba had deceived him about the loyalty of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, as he appears before David and he's described in terms of uh, have not trimmed his feet or his beard or washed his clothes, clearly since the day of David's exile, he had been grieving. He had not been celebrating. And clearly that was the truth. Far from relishing that day as an opportunity to take the throne, Mephibosheth had been filled with anguish and sorrow 
out of allegiance and love for his king, but somehow, apparently because he didn't have a a donkey to ride on and he was lame, he was not able to go with David when he fled. And David takes all this in and now has to make a judgment about the land. And the best decision that he can manage is that the two people, Mephibosheth and Ziba, will divide the land. But I especially want to focus on Mephibosheth's attitude as he appears before the king. Look at, again, verse 28 and verse 30. Verse 28, he says, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? Notice how he's very aware of David's grace to him in the past. And then verse 30 says it very well when he says, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come home safely. And you might say, well, is he just saying that? I think it's evident from the narration here that he really meant that. His response to the slander he had experienced as well as David's judgment about his land, which, by the way, was not really just because... It was based on lies and wicked slander against him, but still he lost half of his wealth. But Mephibosheth clearly received all this with heartfelt conviction of David's grace to him. That was the overriding view he had of the entire situation. And so that's why he could say what he said in verse 28 and verse 30. Whether or not he had all his land or none of his land, he was deeply grateful that the king had returned. Because above all, above his reputation, above his wealth, Mephibosheth loved King David and was grateful to him for all that he had done. In a sense, he was saying, take everything. I'm just glad that you are back as the right and true king. And I want us to just pause and consider the application of this point to our lives. If we have received the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ in saving us from eternal death and giving us heaven itself to know him and to live with him forever, then does that awareness of God's grace to us impact the way we live each day? It should, shouldn't it? God has brought us from death to life How then should we live? Well, especially what should characterize our attitude towards others, but that same grace that we've received. Take the example from this story of being deeply sinned against as Mephibosheth was. If you've ever been slandered, you know that that's a very difficult experience. I remember in sixth grade on trick-or-treat night, my friends and I went through the playground of our elementary school and there were kids soaping the windows of the school and other kids must have seen us go through because the next day the principal called us to his office and asked us did we soap the windows of the school and I just remembered that was a terrifying experience and kids were saying you soap the windows you're in big trouble it was the first experience of slander in my life I got home and my sister had told my mom that I had done it and it wasn't true And by the end of the day, the culprits from 7th and 8th grade were washing all the windows of the school. So I was was redeemed in a sense. But that's not an easy experience to be slandered. Well, what about experiencing injustice? Mephibosheth didn't 
receive complete justice that day. He lost half of his wealth when he had done nothing wrong. Slander, injustice, and remember, life had not been easy for Mephibosheth. When he was five years old, the day occurred when Saul and David were killed in battle with the Philistines. And when that occurred, we're told that his nurse, his nanny, in her haste to flee, had dropped him, and he had become lame in both feet as a result. But apparently, instead of being consumed by bitterness, this man was focused on God's grace to him through David, the king. It's quite an example, isn't it? How about you and me? How how ready are we to forgive others in light of God's grace to us? How ready are we to experience injustice or slander and still be able to trust the Lord and even to rejoice deep down in Him? In 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is addressing the issue of lawsuits among believers, at one point he exclaims, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, instead of presenting a poor testimony to the world, why not rather let yourself be the recipient of injustice? And Paul isn't saying we should simply be a doormat in every case like that, but he is speaking to how our view of life should be transformed by the fact that we have come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and that changes everything about our attitude to those around us every day. Well, our final cameo is Barzilla, this man with this name that's very unfamiliar to us. And the subline of his experience is contentment with God's providence in your life. In verse 31, I want to read some of his story. Now, Barzilla, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham, Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chinham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. And so this final picture shows this man, Barzillai, 80 years old. 
He's a mature saint. He has not sought favor from the king, but in, on the other hand, he has freely and graciously provided for the king and his house in their time of need. Out of his wealth, feeding the king and maybe some of his army in this area of land east of the Jordan. But now David is returning to his palace, returning to his throne, and David offers him the opportunity to return with him. And what does Barzillai say in response? Essentially, he declines the offer because of his age, but he offers this younger man, apparently his son or grandson, in his place. And then we see this touching picture of David finally crossing the Jordan And in verse 39, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. Here was a sincere hug and kiss of love and affection between these two men and respect. Very different than when, not long ago, we saw the king kissing his son Absalom, but it was a dark day. Barzillai is a picture of contentment contentment with God's providence in your life. Yes, he is still serving the king even at this point in his life. He is a still strong man at this age, but we learn that he is ready to go home and to die there. He would like to die near his home. And the Bible makes it clear that contentment is a spiritual grace that is not just for when we are old. Each one of us is called to cultivate contentment with God in his providence. And in Philippians 4, Paul writes... I have learned to be content whatever situation, in whatever situation. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And I don't think Paul was saying that he had stopped learning to be content. In my understanding of what the Bible says, as long as we live on this earth, God is teaching you and he's teaching me deeper lessons in true contentment. I think that's the lesson that Barzilla has for us. Barzilla describes the loss of many of the pleasurable experiences of this life. He, He speaks about not tasting food anymore, really, and not being able to hear the singing anymore. And so, for the believer, the pattern is similar, according to what we read in 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. What a beautiful picture of contentment in God, even with the loss that comes with physical decline, even though our our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. And that kind of contentment is not automatic. It comes only as we walk daily in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with joy and obedience in his word. And Hebrews thirteen five sums it all up. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's the key. The promise of God's presence in our lives. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. The lesson from Barzillai is let us keep learning the deep lessons of contentment in Christ. And in the spirit of Barzillai, may we be content with the kiss of our king and with his love in our hearts. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these examples, both good and bad. Lord, thank you for your word, which 
gives us wisdom and applies to us, even now in the New Testament era, Lord, help us to be true in faith to you and very much aware of our need for you every day, content with your provision and having that attitude of grace to those around us. May we be an example in some way to others, Lord, and may we show forth the love and the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.